Howdy, and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. This morning, our guest is Mr. Bruce Sandifer. Bruce first fell in love with the lure of bridle horses in his early teenage years, and he started working for some of the big outfits right out of school. He learned from everyone he could, including Ed Connell's books, and those were a big influence to him. He has spent time as a horse trainer and soon became disenchanted with today's show pen world, something he and I definitely have in common. He decided to stick to the traditional California style and began teaching people some years ago. He now gives lessons and workshops from his home base in Santa Barbara, California. He has founded the California Bridal Horse Association, whose mission reads as following. To preserve and protect an essential and threatened part of both California and Western U.S. history, the method of horsemanship and stockmanship developed by the early Californios uh, and the International Association for the Preservation of Early California Bridal Horses and Stockmanship. I'm sorry I stumbled through that. I have a little trouble reading my own handwriting sometimes. So, Mr. Sandifer, how are you this morning? I'm well, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Well, I, I try to, to get the scope of the whole horse world out there, and I think you're a, a definitely a good representation of the California style and traditions and so forth, so I'm excited to have this chat with you. Um, Colt, we're in my office. I've got a sick son and several animals. Colt, Colt, <laughs> remove it now. This is where it's good. We can edit every single time I do this. I wind up with a cat in here. I didn't know about, and they wind up making a fuss. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, if it never fails. As soon as you get on something like this, everybody in the world comes walking in. <laughs> okay. My apologies. So we start off every every podcast with the lightning round questions just to loosen everybody up. So, Mr. Sandifer, what is your favorite way to relax? My favorite way to relax? Well, I like naps. Okay. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, um, yeah, I find uh, we try to stay pretty relaxed around here. We don't get too uptight about things, so. Just living life every day is pretty relaxing, I think. I've seen enough pictures on your Facebook page that uh, rides on the beach have got to be a pretty good way to end the day. You seem to live in a very beautiful setting there. Yeah, um, we're, we're blessed. Are you a morning or an evening person? Well, I, I, I'm good in uh, the morning. I like to get up early, but uh, I'm not very good in the middle of the day, but that nights when i do my best thinking what's your favorite color of horse bay sorrel or something else now i gotta say bay a bay horse i just uh i don't know i've had some very good bay horses and they seem to be pretty even this is uh, one of those very controversial questions but do you think that pineapple belongs on pizza no i don't believe so <laughs> all right do you have a? <laughs> I'm not opposed to it, but you know, I'm not, it's not a preference. <laughs> I don't really have a big deal there. There are some people that have some very strong feelings about that that question. I, I don't get it, but hey. Um, <laughs> do you have any particular pet peeve? 
Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I see is people taking the sensitivity out of horses over desensitization and the practice of it. For me, that's a huge pet peeve. I think sensitivity should be cultivated, not erased. I certainly agree with that, especially if you work cows. Sometimes you're looking this way and your your four-legged partner needs to get you the hell out of the way without having to be told, right? Do you have a favorite beverage? A favorite beverage? Well, I'm a big fan of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Do you drink coffee after the mid-afternoon nap? You you like the perk in the middle of the day or just the morning time or or what? No, I'm a pretty much... uh, frequent coffee drinker whenever it's offered or available can you tell us something unexpected about you so you're this california bridal horse guy do you fly hang gliders on the weekend or you know is there something we wouldn't see coming about you no let's see unexpected i guess the thing that's probably unexpected to a lot of people is that I enjoy the aspects of a lot of different styles of horsemanship, and I study um, a very broad variety. I I don't think getting tunnel vision in your horsemanship allows for growth, and so um, I'm a big fan of classical uh, dressage and some of the things implemented. I don't think a lot of it really pertains to the stock horse, but... I believe that some of the methods are, are strongly related. Yes, sir. I, we'll talk about it later, but I really feel like there's there's sort of a common ancestor at a fork in the road somewhere back there between the, the bridle horse and dressage. Um, get your thoughts on that, that later. But the, there, there's a lot of similarities, I, I think. If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you choose? i think it would be i would like to be a better communicator thoughts or feelings you more an analytical thinker or an intuitive seat of the pants go with your gut sort of a guy i'm kind of a ride by feel i like um i think feel uh is always my first clues if you will um first feel i get is is the most important and then i'll try to analyze the feel from there so feel first okay do you have a favorite piece of tack or horse related tool for me it's the hackamore i think that uh, um, the hackamore is uh highly underrated and highly misunderstood but uh i believe it's a great tool to develop horses into uh balanced and confident horses do you have a favorite book or movie well my favorite book i would say (laughs) not really i I mean I'm i'm pretty well read but i don't really have anything uh, favorite uh yeah of course lonesome dove i like that that was a good movie so, it doesn't bother you watching uh captain call ride with rain chains and split reins throughout the movie that doesn't 
doesn't tickle you somewhere? <laughs> well, you know, you can't, uh, if you picked apart everything you saw in horsemanship and movies, you wouldn't like anything with horses. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a, a guilty pleasure that you wouldn't mind sharing with us? Yeah, let's see, a guilty pleasure. I don't know. I don't, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of what that would be. No, I'm a big guy. I like to eat a lot. Eating is one of my favorite things, but okay. <laughs> I don't know if that's a guilty pleasure. <laughs> that's fair enough. What what type of cuisine do y'all have over in, in California? I have not made it that way. Is it more uh, Mexican, Spanish influence stuff or anything under? Yeah, the- a lot of a lot of Mexican uh influence things. Uh, we have a really good barbecue. So I'm a big fan of um oak barbecue um mm-hmm. uh, that they do here they do a santa maria style tri-tip and stuff that we're pretty famous for around this particular area okay and uh, so we always like that good barbecue hard to beat can't beat that what's your favorite dinosaur my favorite dinosaur I hope you get to be about eight or nine. No one ever asks you that anymore, you know, so I thought I had to include Yeah, no, that's (laughs) – that is an interesting question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) I should know this. My uh, partner has some young kids, and they're always telling me about their dinosaurs, and I can't remember the names. (laughs) You know, you only remember, like, T-Rexes, so I'll go with that. (laughs) All right. And have you ever had a UFO encounter? Well, I won't say I've had a UFO. I've seen some strange things. Yes, sir. you know, in so, the night sky. But so, uh, I don't know if I've ever had a UFO encounter. <laughs> I, I think you are my tenth or eleventh guess, and it's about fifty-fifty of people that have said they've they've seen something weird out there that they're not real sure of, and people that have just said no. Uh, which surprises me. I didn't really think anybody would would own up to that. So, all right. Well, well, that's the end of the short answer questions. Uh, I'm going to give you 172 points. So, that's a high score so far. Congratulations. No, thanks. <laughs> all right. Well, now we've we've loosened up a little and broken the ice. Why don't we we get into the the horses? So, I'm going to ask you a couple of abstract questions that you're going to hate me for but just get your take on it so you mentioned riding a horse by feel a little bit ago what does feel mean to you the lack of resistance i think feel to me is the lack of resistance biomechanical resistance uh emotional resistance to me when things are right it's almost like floating. It's a, it's a very, uh, there's very little contacts, if you will, running into each other. Yes, sir. Well, well, let me ask you this then, just to be contradictory. Would you say that there can be horses that are lacking resistance in the wrong places? So, so for instance, um, I didn't. I'm not sure about this. I'll, I'll always pick on reining in the Western world when I when I use bad examples. But I've ridden a bunch of reining horses whose 
flexion at the pole was like they were on a hinge and they would they would overflex in the blink of an eye, but there'd be zero resistance even though they were going somewhere I didn't want them to go. So how would you characterize that part of field? Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right in that. We have to realize what's an evasion from contact, which it can also be a feel of, you know, non-resistance. I think a lot of people think that uh, when a horse is evading engagement, a lot of times that it's, it's light. And really, it's just escaping using itself in a lot of ways. So I think that's one of the, you know, the big things that we have to develop as we learn is that when the horse gets away from something, is it evading it or is it engaging with it? Is it an engagement response or is it a, a disengagement and basically an escape? Yes, sir. I will go with another abstract topic. And, and again, we, we have listeners that are all over the world and I'm sure a lot of them aren't really familiar with the, the tradition. So would you just kind of give us a, a 101 version of what the progression of a bridle horse is, the Hakima Freno progression there? Well, I think, you know, that in modern times that's become quite different or I'll give you my version, which is uh, we don't start our horses until uh, until they're four. We give them a little more time to uh, so develop and, and get their bones set a little more. And we start them in the hackamore. And so we work them. We get them used to things on the ground for a little while. And we just use a hackamore. We'll use a hackamore about a year, year and a half, depending on our ourselves and the horse until it develops enough collection and gathered and, and is good with the rider and, and knows about everything we need it to know. And then we proceed to the two rein, which is the hackamore with the addition of the bridle. The bridle is about balance. So the whole process of the hackmore is creating balance in the horse's body and, and in tuning it to our balance. Then we progress to the bridle and we do this because it helps maintain it. It's a steadier bridle signal. We two rein it for as long as we feel that we need to. And then eventually we ride them straight up. Um, when I say bridle, I mean spade bit. That's what we ride. That's all I ride is spade bits. Personally, I only ride Santa Barbara spade bits because I feel that they have the best solid neutral position and balance. I'll ask a few questions on the tack right there and some of the, well, I, I, again, I'm trying to be candid. Some arguments I've gotten into with, with some some flat hatters over the years. And I, and I do find that, that the group in particular has some pretty strong disagreements on some of the terms. So, for instance, I, I about got in a fist fight with a guy that was determined to tell me that a hackamore had to have a Fyodor knot on it or it wasn't a hackamore. If it's just a bozal and a hanger and a Makati, then it was he'd call it a bozal, but my you know, hackamore wasn't the, the correct term and and so forth. So would you would you give us your 
your definitions on what the traditional terms actually mean and where the caveats are. Uh, and I, I guess I'll ask you this separately since this is a big question, but I, I'm going to ask you to define a spade bit too. What what the specific mechanics that have to be there in order to make it a spade bit are. So let, I guess let's start with the hackamore. So, well, with the hackamore, um, I am a, a Theodore using guy. I haven't always been. It's something that I came across later in my studies. I mean, I started like everybody else. I used to be snaffle bit. Hackamore, two rain, we would use a half breed and then go up into a spade, kind of more modern style. What I found was there were certain aspects of that that did not complement each other, that were not in a, a straight line progression that I wanted to be in. So I took away a lot of things, the snaffle being one of them, and then also progression bits up into a spade bit. But about the hackamore, um, for me, I start my horses on a, on a relatively soft hackamore, one that's fairly flexible, at least five-eighths in diameter, something that's not going to bite them too much. I don't want a lot of authority when I first start my horses. I don't want to intimidate them into places. I want to, uh, to have them feel comfortable enough to... Tension is, you know, is really the anti-engagement. Not, a horse doesn't want to engage into things that it's afraid of. And so the reason that the Fyodor is important to me is it because it creates a neutral balance position. When we adjust our Fyodor right, instead of us having to lift our hands, the horse can float inside the circle that is the hackamore. And... So it creates a place where you can teach the horse to look for, where you don't have to hold it up with your hands to keep them in a certain framework, which is, you know, uh, correctly adjusted. It's going to be right ahead of vertical, slightly ahead of vertical in its head position. So when we pick up on a range, the horse would come to vertical no further as we lift our our hand but it's really not the hand lift it's the drive from behind and that's where i differ i think and some people their idea on this style is that it starts from the piece in your hand and i believe it starts from the hind end of the horse and goes to your hands and so i like a soft oh, a hackamore without a lot of authority because i want to push him to a place where he's not scared of. Push the horse up into the bridle, up into the hackamore, so that everything initiates from the hind end. So our seat is way more important than our hands in that respect of as far as I'm concerned, if you're riding a horse from back to front. We had the Louisiana Equine Council meeting yesterday, and we had a, a guest clinician, Mr. David Carter, and he rode some problem horses. And I was standing next to a lady, and, and he was riding a horse that uh, was having some real problems tracking on a straight line. You know, he was going through the arena. The horse was kind of veering off and heading, heading the underway and all. So a pretty green uh, horse. And the lady kept commenting how, how little he was holding on to the horse's face. And – that's one of those things that 
I don't think the general public understands that the horse you hold the least is the greenest horse and you kind of just pick up soft and get in, get out. But if you're riding a young horse and you have contact on the reins 90% of the time, that is not going to go well <laughs> in the end. You know, you, you have to be building that relationship and, and very much with the get in, get out, or you're going to wind up with an uncontrollable basket case that's numb to the, the whole deal in the end. So yeah, I think that's true. You're going to have to be able to ride the horse forward and allow it to go places and then, you know, guide it between the lines. I mean, basically, that's what we're trying to do. I think that keeping the horse in between both sides of our body, the reins, the piece of equipment you're riding, whatever it is, and being able to go someplace, that's got to always be the first step. So let's say that someone out there was interested in going and buying a Hackamore. What would be some of the options that they might have? Like, like you were talking about one that doesn't bite them. Does that have more to do with diameter or number of plats or what, what would you be looking for specifically there? Because there really are a lot of variations in Hackamores I don't think most people are aware of. So, Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of times people end up, you know, we want to stay with the rawhide core. We want to have one that's real flexible and that will actually shape around a horse's head or uh, face but not so raggy that it doesn't have a, a create a, a good circle, you know, where the horse can be in when nothing's hitting. But basically it's kind of like, it's like playing operation. You teach the horse to stay in that inside of that circle without hitting the edges. You know, it's like operation. You don't want them to light up the nose. Mm-hmm. And, and so you have to have enough body in that. One of the big uh, things I see is a lot of them have too long of a nose butt, and so it doesn't release quickly enough. The further down the hanger on the sides of the hackmore, the slower the heel knot will release. And you'll see it for a while there in the 60s and such. They got to where they had a 12-inch nose butt because people were just showing it in Western Pleasure, and they didn't like where the hanger would be come into contact with the eye instead of tying it out they just lengthen the nose but we would rather set it up to where you know either tie that out of the eye which won't change the balance of the hackmore so i watch for that i don't like over say eight eight and a half inches over the top for a nose but as far as the amount of plates as long as it's braided smoothly it doesn't really matter you just don't want anything that feels like you're chewing rasp (laughs) <laughs> something smoothly made yes sir i tend to prefer a rawhide nose button and a lot of go over kangaroo body and the nose button i like it rawhide because it just helps maintain the shape a little bit gives the horse um they can feel it rotate because we're really not about pulling on them very little in a hackamore where that's a little bit different than a snaffle bit. A snaffle bit is kind of more effective with low hands. They, they tend to, that gives you a, a good engagement with the lower jaw of the horse. When you lift it up, it tends to lift off the jaw and into the mouth a little further. A hackamore is not like that. It's a lifting apparatus. It's built, designed by ropers. The whole California style is a roping style. Well, to get to your horn, you have to lift your hand. 
And so if you have low hand, it's really hard to dally. And it's not good to dally above your range. So it's a lifting style and instead of pulling back. And we rarely try not to pull back behind the fork. Lifting in front of it, that's a different story. But it's designed to lift, so you want it to lift and release. The movement is has more to do with the contact. As we know, it doesn't have enough force to really back the horse off. It can be created. You can you can intimidate them for a very small time, but uh, you're not you're going to run out of bullets pretty quickly, and you can't hang on. I feel like uh, a lot of people try the hack more, but they don't have very good success. They end up going back to the snaffle bit because it takes a lot more thought and care to keep, to be successful for any length of time. In we have that issue in bits too. That That's one of the, the reasons for that video that I felt it's warranted because a lot of people do what I call fail their way through the bits rather than graduate their way. And, and they yeah. like to say, of failure. Exactly. They run out of bullets and then they need a bigger gun. And that's, that's not the way it's supposed to be done. But, um, I guess a couple other things with the hack more, you talked about the nose button and the material. What about adjustment on the horse's face? So you can go a little higher up the cheek or a little lower toward the mouth. Is that dependent on the horse for you? Or do you, I know, uh, like Benny Gitron is pretty famous for liking it up pretty high. I think Al Dunning is that way. Uh, I've always preferred it a little lower myself. So where where do you fall in that? Now, I, I fall in from the point where I don't go below uh, the notch in the nose. And then if you run down the side of the top of your horse's nose, you'll hit a notch there. And that's where solid bone quits. And it becomes, a, you know, you, in your video, it shows, you know, the skull and those two little fine bones that come down there and split off. And so I like to stay at that notch or above just because I don't want to be on soft tissue. I want it to, to rest on bone. You're less likely to run in there. And I don't ever want the horse to feel like it's getting, in any way, its hair cut off. And the adjustment, I want it to come into contact if you pick up on your heel knot slightly past the point where it passes the center line if you will on your nose button in within a half inch to three quarters of an inch i want it to start to, to hit the chin at that point but have a good range a couple of inches of range in there so i usually if i can stick two <coughs> fingers in in below in their jaw, Makati in their chin, uh, their jaw, that's usually a pretty good start. I may be a little looser on Colts for the first couple of times. I feel they have to move their mouths and be a, not feel restricted or trapped. They get a little claustrophobic if you have too tight. So you do need to take the confirmation of the horse into account, and there are different sizes of bozals and so forth for a little a coarser made horse versus a finer made like a little arab or something like that you could have him yeah. swimming in a bozal <laughs> yeah that's true you know you probably don't want five or six wraps below your rein another thing i see is people putting you know several wraps above their reins and they think they're going to get some leverage on there 
And if you're if you're trying to get leverage, if you're trying to, to create force with your hackamore, you should probably just not use hackamore. <laughs> and a lot of people, of course, uh, get confused with you know hackamore bits or mechanical hackamores, and they think that's something that's. Uh, but those are just they're just vicing the whole head head vices, and so. That's a whole different yeah. pack of Yeah, I I try not to be real judgmental. I kind of figure if you know you're you're an adult and you can make your own decisions and buy whatever you want and put it on your horse, but you definitely do notice there are certain uh bits and mechanics and so forth that you just never see a happy horse in. And a mechanical hackamore is is one of those. That's that is rarely a pretty picture to watch. It's normally pretty uh pretty cringeworthy. Uh, what about, I guess, other things we could talk all, about? All bits. And, well, I was going to say all bits, all pieces of equipment have a place where they can be abused or, or where they stop being a signal and start being a forceful thing. Um, you know, I tend to go to, I tend to go err on the side of less force. To me, I think if, if I have any kind of a relationship with my horse, he's, he's going to get scared. We're, I'm going to grab hold of him sometimes. And there's going to be moments where I take a hold of him. What I want to do is have something on the face where I can support him, but not scared. If you're scared, pain doesn't usually help fear as far as I've ever, you know, and yes. so adding pain to a, to a, a fearful response generally is not a very good solution. I always think about it in that um, pain tends to always work as a demotivator. So if you think of like a hot wire fence, you don't pee on a hot wire fence three times in a row. You, it, you to stop doing something, but it's not a real good motivator to get you to do something. It, it definitely is, can be overused with a horse for sure. So another thing or two about hackamore is there, there's some changes in diameter that would typically take place. So you said you would start with at least a five eighth. So about the biggest we would ever find would be a, a three quarter or so. And a five eighth is probably the most common, but where, where would we go from there? And what, what, what sort of milestones are you looking for in your horse that tell you that it might be time to, to change or adjust something and, and kind of progress down the road? Well, we start with the heavier one or the bigger diameter. Uh, as, as we know, the bigger diameter it is, the less bite. doesn't matter what you have, the bits, whatever it is. A larger diameter, the larger surface area has less bite. And so we start with that because we don't want to scare the horse in the beginning. We want to understand what we're doing. Then we may graduate. So... You know, you may start with a three-quarter, and it really depends. It's more about weight, and my the way that I do it is more about weight. I want that weight. So when the horse is out of position, out of balance with the hackamore setup, that it feels the weight. It's not enough to make it change, but it understands when it's out of balance. When a horse is correctly in balance, the whole weight of the hackamore rig is run on the, the hanger, okay? When his head's in the right position, the nose, the nose button is not sitting on his nose, bumping up and down. It's just, it's just sliding off like a, you know, rock down a hill basically. And so, and the heel knot 
is picked up a little bit. So he can get there and stay in that slightly ahead of vertical position. That's the weight. That's why I start with the bigger one. As the horse understands this, as we've developed the core so he can maintain that a little bit on his own through collection, and he learns to carry himself a little more that way, then I can use less. I can use less to give him the same, to understand the same thing. So less weight. Weight is big, important, really important in the California system. The weight of the equipment amplifies or it uh, amplifies the balance. Okay. As the horse progresses, it takes less amplification for the horse to find a balance point. And so we move down. You might go to a half inch. I have three hackamores that I use. You know, I mean, I don't. You'll see these guys, and they have different weights, range. I have different range. If you get one that's a little bit dull, you can use a different rein, maybe a tighter rein. You know, to get in their jaw a little bit and say, "Hey, don't push on." Me. But if that doesn't come through the body, it's not going to matter anyway. I use a five eighths. Rarely a half inch, then a three eighths, and then I'll go to a five sixteenths as my tutor. And so once the horse understands the balance, it doesn't take as much equipment. I think a lot of people are thinking that certain kinds of equipment are going to improve their horsemanship. And I think that equipment can either emphasize the horsemanship that you're trying to do or distract from it. And I try to use the California system. The way that I do it, and I feel that this equipment works best with what I'm trying to create with my seat, with my balance in my seat. The way I use my seat is exactly like the bit balance. And so it's exactly like the hackamore balance. When I disrupt balance, that's a signal. We disrupt the balance that we're in, what we call a neutral position. We disrupt the balance, and that sets the horse up for the movement. The release allows the movement, which is engagement, disrupting balance is attention, relaxing in between the stride. That's why it's only a pick. It's just a stride at a time. So if you pick a stride, you pick a stride and you release, and that allows it to happen. And so the signal is disruption of balance. The reward is return to balance. This is one of the things, like, I definitely don't consider myself a California or, or a traditionalist. But to me, good horsemanship is good horsemanship. And, and I would I would think that a dressage rider or a, a good reining trainer or whatever that just listened to what you said about neutral and signal and all, there should be no one that disagrees with that. I mean, that's no, no matter how you're riding the horse, that should be a major underlying principle of the way you're you're going about it. If if you're not doing it that way, you're just wrestling a damn horse. And that's that's not what I want to do all day. So um, it becomes I don't want to fight. You know I like horses. Um, I've done it other ways. You know, and I mean, it took me a lot of years. Cowboy, you're just basically trying to survive uh, a lot of the horses and, and the country and things like that. You know, and then you get into what these people that do amazing things, and you go, wow, boy. When you look behind the curtain, and you go, wow, is that what it takes to get that? And then pretty soon you go home and you feel bad. You know, you feel like you're losing your soul. And, and pretty soon you don't like horses anymore. They become a commodity. And so uh, to me, 
I find that this is. I think the best horsemen are always trying to do what's best for the horse. Yes, sir. It, it should be a big. No part matter of... what kind of hat they wear. <laughs> there you go. That should be a big part of the definition of a horseman. I mean, if, if you don't have the horse's well-being and their their mental and emotional <laughs> state in mind, then what are you doing? I guess the last part of the Hackmore that, that you've you've kind of alluded to a bunch that we haven't discussed specifically is the heel knot. So there are, there are a few different styles. The weight and the balance can be changed there. A plug can be added or not added. Uh, so what what are your your thoughts on those deals? What's your setup preference? Well, the heel knot has one purpose, and that is to once the rain is lifted, it's moved up and rotates the nose button that it should drop back. The reason we use a Fedor is so that when it drops back, it doesn't drop back to the point where it hits the chin. Because that would be counterproductive. Okay. Um, a lot of people just think of Fedors for one reason, so the horse doesn't pull back and, you know, get the, the bottom over their chin. I mean, we've all done. <laughs> if you've used the Hackmore very much, but that one, you know. That, that part where they have the bottom of the hackmore in the mouth is not a good place. So that's what it's for. So I think that, you know, a lot of it's just practical. It's got to have enough weight to drop the reins back. And of course, the weight, weight you have on your reins, if you have one that has a light heel knot, you put a little weight. And a lot of times you run a, a big old bolt or something down your Magadi and on the, and then I'll, Drop it back down because that's the purpose. That you know, I get a lot of grief because I run my the tassel on my car Makati's to the back, mm-hmm. and people are you know you tied your Makati wrong, and I'm like, well, no. When I release that, I don't want it to come down there and tickle the horse's chin. I never, if anything that I can do to give the horse not give the horse an excuse to be bothered, then I'm going to do that. You know, and I think that in that may break with tradition, but, you know, I think tradition evolves. It's just good sense. Yeah. I, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly with you. I ride snaffles more than anything, but, but like I put the slobber strap on my snaffles behind the rain for the same reason. Uh, there, there was a particular horse years ago that, that she was always a fidgety little mare, just moving her head around and could never get comfortable. And one day I was working in the round pin and I just had a, a bridle on her, just tied the reins up on the saddle horn and moving her around. And she stopped and was breathing. And I always liked her. She was a good minded little mare. But when you put a bridle on, she just got fidgety. And I noticed the, the tassels on my string was tickling her whiskers. And that was the whole damn problem. I got it out of the way and boom, different horse. I mean, night and day immediately. I think horses are ticklish as all get out. And if you're tickling them, they're not going to be happy about it. So I'm wholeheartedly with you right there. I'm really glad that that you said that. I've had that same thought about the Fiodor. My introduction to using a a Fiodor versus not was self-defense because I was riding around a bunch of guys that would love to ride up beside you. And if they caught you on a colt with a hackamore, they were going to grab him and and slip it off. And (laughs) here's your first bridleless ride in an 800 acre pasture, you know? And so yeah. you put that on there and now they can't, you at least have three seconds to defend yourself before they can slip it off. You know? <laughs> uh, but it does change things. Like you say, now, now the heel knot's not going all the way up to the chin and so forth. And 
I'm, I'm really glad we had that discussion. This is why I picked you because I, 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 I feel like you're a critically thinking guy. And, and just like you said, traditions can evolve. And any of those guys that were on the ranches 300 years ago, if they had come across a problem and found a solution that was a better way, they would have used it. And, and I think we have the same obligation today. Well, and that's the thing too. I also I'm amazed at, at uh, you know these were not uh, really sophisticated guys in a lot of matter. Most of them couldn't even write their names. But uh, the science in this system is is quite amazing. The balance and how it's put together. There's very little in the world that really compares to as well thought out as it through the whole system. To me, that's intriguing. Uh, I think that rediscovering it has been, you know, could be a life's work. I mean, they had the advantage of their grandfathers would teach them. And so they were that far ahead. They always brought it along. Though. If you look at the transitions, you know, it was brought from early Bacchus, from Mission Era, through the process. By the end, and Angloization and the influx of other people coming into the country, it's, it was an amazingly technical and balanced system as far as each piece that they put involved, every piece from the way the range were built, from the weights and the balances, specifically designed for each horse. Well, I guess we, we talked a lot about the Hackamore. To me, a big part of that system is the Makati. So... What are some of your, or I guess first, why don't you tell everybody what a Makati is and and some of the the finer points of that and how you might go about changing that with the Hackamore. So you mentioned that a minute ago, but but not in great deal. So like we have diameters of, of the Bozal, we would have diameters of, of the Makati as well. Sure. I think a lot of people on Makatis, they're very, uh, I think you got to like the feel of it in your hand got to have some weight and balance a good drape something that's not too light but most importantly you know i like the old four strand makatis a lot you know i use some six strands with cores the heart so heart makati with core has, has it's what they call a heart and that's just a, a twisted piece of rope inside of it but generally i prefer main hair makati stuff that's fairly decent on your hand we used to twist them out of cow tails when we talked cows you know so and they tend to get a little bit stiffer when it gets wet as do tail hair ones but you know there's a field of makati you get uh, used to you can take a tail hair makati on a horse that maybe has gotten dulled up or you get in your string and just needs to be backed off a little bit put on tail hair makati and as that horse sweats and it gets damp, it's going to get a little stiffer. And that gives you a little bit more emphasis on the jaw. It's not, it's a trick. And to me, a trick is used when we fail. <laughs> but a lot of times we're not dealing with, we're not dealing with things that we create. We're having to deal with things that other people have created. And so to get that horse backed off enough that you can have a dialogue, sometimes that's necessary. I feel that. We're not starting with a blank page, so sometimes we have to be willing to color a little bit outside of maybe what we want to do to get to where we can start. But uh, Makati's, 
you know, you'll hear it different. There's different weights and things like that. Diameters. Like I use a half inch Makati on a five eighths a lot of times if I'm gonna rub. <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> because it's easier in your hand, you know, and it's not. You know, some people. Oh no, it's got to be the same diameter as the as the bozal, right? But I think a lot of these. Uh, I think a lot of rules by people that really don't understand the system. Mr. Sanford, I'm, I'm, I've just had another cat problem. Uh, so <laughs> would you mind backing up to what you you uh, you said that it's typically the same diameter and take it from there? Yeah, I think. Generally, the Makati is the same. A five-eighths Makati goes on a five-eighths Bozell. But I think there's some room there as the horse develops along, and it doesn't need the weight of that. Instead of going down to a half-inch Bozell, you can go to a lighter Makati. The horse understands where it needs to be better. I do this when I have to rope. I don't really like roping on my Hackamore horses a lot. But sometimes that's the job requires that. If you look at old pictures, which is really interesting, say from the 30s and stuff, I've had some very good mentors. And they show crews. And the guys in the in Hackamores and the guys in two-rain horses, not even carrying their reattas. Only the guys on bridle horses were carrying their reattas. They developed horses to a very high degree before they started putting them in positions where the horse is really going to have to work. These days, we don't have that luxury. Sometimes we have to just go ahead and do it. I'm not opposed to it, but I'm pretty careful about it. But if you have to do that, a half inch Makati is a lot easier on your hand if you're back in a long rope, which we tend to back a little bit longer rope than, say, a lot of folks in your country. Well, I'm one so, of the exceptions there. I've always been a long rope sort of a guy when – uh, you probably don't know much about me, but I came up um, as a cutting horse futurity guy, two-year-old man. And all cutting horse operations are actually yearling backgrounding operations. And that's that's how they're getting the cattle to work. And so that was one of my responsibilities was doctoring the yearlings. And I always took it as a personal offense. If, if I ever had to chase a calf out across the pasture to rope him or something, that was, I was not going to be happy that day. You know, I always thought yeah. it was my responsibility to be a little slicker and a little softer about it. We were usually doing that off of the two-year-olds. Anyway, I, I've like what you just said actually surprises me because to me, some of the lessons that a horse can learn while roping are, are that's part of the giving it a job and developing it along. They seem to really figure out some things when you're dragging and, you know, all of the, that part of it, but but that's, you know, that's interesting. Sometimes history isn't what we expected it to be. So, Well, I think, uh, you know, I'm not saying that a person, you know, shouldn't rope and get your rope down on and do some stuff. I just think it should be in a place where you're not putting the horse at a disadvantage right away because they can learn a lot of bad things roping, you know, getting in jackpots and stuff like that that don't go away. For a long time. And mm-hmm. so I think if we have the ability to introduce them to them in bite-sized portions, that's a lot different than going out and saying roping 50 or 60 calves into running or something like that, you know, and where the horse gets tired and sore in that process, they're going to get dull and they're going to 
to not be able to carry themselves in collection or to use themselves as well for that kind of time period. And so it adds a lot of things where they get to pushing or we have to use a little bit more, get a little more handsy with them just to get through the day. I think I'm not opposed to roping on them. I just want to keep it into chunks where, you know, a lot of the old timers here, when they said the old time vaqueros, the real guys that had come up through the rancho period after the mission period, they said when they got done, you know, they'd been in ranches that were taken over by Anglos, you know, which was more about production. But when their horses got done, even their bridal horses, they just stopped. That was it. <laughs> and they were like, no, my horse, my horse, is, you know, he's done what he can do today. Yes, and so that manana attitude was, don't do anything today that's not going to make your horse better in the future or that's going to inhibit your progression. And I think a lot of people think that was lazy, but it's more about, look, if I do this today, yes, I may get this done today, but tomorrow I'm going to have to fix it. I may have to fix this for two weeks, which is not going to bring my progression along. Yes, or, or injure the animal. They get fatigued and now they right. slip or something, and yeah, it's way more than two weeks. So, right. Well, is there more? So, manana was something I was going to ask you about a little later on, but do you want to talk a little more about that? Or are you satisfied with that? Or, well, I think that manana attitude is, is, is fairly important. It's not putting things off, it's just trying not to do things that you're going to have to fix or going through a process. It's like, a lot of people, they've got to be doing things with these horses all the time. You know, so they'll tend to lunge a horse and lunge a horse till it drops his shoulders, its hips are kicked out or something, just because they think that they've got to be doing something with these horses. And, and it's like, well, you can do things, but I think we have to really think and, and see that. And if you tell you've made a few bridal horses, it's very difficult to know what's going to cause you problems later on. Tell you finished horses. We're we're a society of starters, horse starters. Nobody really finishes. It's like, well, we just recycle. You know, we're in this evergreen type of society. It's like, what can we do in thirty days, three days, whatever? But to just not do anything that you're going to have to fix later. I think that's the manana attitude. And my my idea of manana is just try to be aware. What do I do today that I'm going to have to fix or maybe set me back later on? Yes, sir. To my mind, it's kind of like maturity. It's it's sort of the the difference between the 50-year-old ranch hand that, that's thinking ahead and planning and setting things up and has an order that makes sense and the 21-year-old that you're always going, why did you do that? That was, you know, <laughs> just they're, they're more in the way than they're helpful, you know. They can't help themselves. <laughs> yes. I like the enthusiasm, but then you <laughs> thought about that for about three minutes before you. <laughs> well, that was a lot of time on the Hackmore, and I, I'm glad we spent it. That was more than I was planning on, on talking, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you that it's, incredibly misunderstood and, and undervalued in a lot of different systems. And uh, there's, there's a good place for it. I, I had a cutting colt that was a little stallion and he was, a, he was kind of out of some of the ranker bloodlines and was pretty tough. And I wound up riding him most of his two-year-old year in a hackamore and that wound up being just the trick for him. So like what you're talking about, I'm glad to hear you being unconventional in a few senses to me. 
that's where mastery comes in. When you really understand all of the individual components and how they work, kind of, you know, the rules. Now you also can recognize where you can break some rules to make things better and change things up a little bit here and there. And that's kind of where you progress from science to art, I guess. Uh, like a race car driver, you know, he, he knows he can take this engine and this transmission and change that rear end that's not supposed to go with it, but he can make it work. Now he's going to go even faster because he really understands the breakdowns of, of how the parts play together. Sure. Well, I think we have hit the spot where I need to do the sponsor for this episode. So our sponsor for this episode is the unicorn bit. Does your horse sometimes go too fast or not stop as quickly or as hard as you'd like? Does he often toss or shake his head or show other signs of displeasure? You need Dr. Silvertongue's Miraculous Unicorn Bit. Our Miraculous Unicorn Bit is made with a proprietary blend of metals, including meteorites from outer space. They are forged in the fires of Mount Doom and quenched in the saliva of Incan princesses. After passing inspection by our experts, every Dr. Silvertongue's miraculous unicorn bit is then blessed by Druid priests. This bit will put the perfect headset on any horse with no skill or adjustments required on your part. They'll stop, turn, and still want cuddles when the ride has ended. Our miraculous unicorn bit will also make the perfect pot of coffee, remove old wallpaper, and cures polio. If you are having horse problems, you don't need experience or expensive trainers. You need Dr. Silvertongue's Miraculous Unicorn Bit. We have special payment plans with approved credit. So thank you to that sponsor for this episode. All right. <laughs> so, so we talked about the hackamore. Let's, let's get into spades. And I'm going to ask you, first off, what specifically makes a spade a spade what what characteristics in your mind have to be present or it's it's not a spade it's something else all right to me a spade it has to have braces that's a very yeah. integral part of, this, of the whole thing um i'm not a big fan of, of shorter spades i like a minimum of four inches tall from cannon bar to the top of the spade um i want the most coverage. One of the big things about, you know, we say they're a signal bit and what they are is they're a slow bit, a very slow bit. Okay. A spade is a super, super slow bit. I noticed in your video, you talked about slow hands being slow, giving the signals time to work. Most bits, as you know, right now in this day and age, they're bit built to engage the curb strap and therefore, the pressure on the lower jaw and bars quickly. Uh, a spade is not designed for that. So braces, height, counterbalance, a strong neutral position. To me is that when you lay that bit in your hand and you move your hand back and forth, that bit does not move a lot. It's not like a pendulum where it just rocks back and forth. It stays in a position. Depending on your horse, it's confirmation. I like mine, at, let's say, five degrees ahead of vertical. And so that the comfort place for that bit to sit in the horse's mouth is, is ahead of vertical. And that's where it balances. That's where it hangs from the headstall in the horse's mouth. It floats, so to speak. 
the braces shouldn't be too close to the bar. They need a little bit of distance from the cannon bar, but not so much the horse going to run its tongue through there. Uh, what you'll see in most traditional old-time spades. I have a guy that he's also a collector, the guy that builds my bits, and he builds them on Merduenio patterns. Merduenio is the one that came up with the Santa Barbara-style spade, him and Jose Ortega, Francisco Ortega, who was the commandant of the Presidio in Santa Barbara. They became used around Santa Barbara a lot, so hence the name, Santa Barbara bits. The reason I like this is the counterbalance makes that solid, real steady neutral position. When you move it out of neutral, it returns to neutral very quickly on its own. Would you mind just stating real quick what specific aspect of So the Santa Barbara is a, is a cheek style. What specific aspect of the Santa Barbara makes that cheek a Santa Barbara? Well, it'll come down like any other bit, and then it has a bell a bell or a crown, you know, circle out the back. And so if you look at it, the progression in California was what they came from with Spain, what they still use in Spain is the Las Cruces, a straight cheek bit. That's very much like a pendulum. Las Cruces, you see a lot of people are using them now. They used to have a lip chain or a chain that would go behind the bit to keep it from rocking forward. You know, when the horse went, that's kind of gone the way, you know, they don't use them anymore. But that's what it's for, because the bit would, would swing forward and cause the horses to flip their heads. Yes. Or they would get hold of the cheek. Then became an S cheek. That was pretty popular afterwards. And then towards the end of the California era, the Santa Barbara was developed. And that bell is the counterbalance. That's what rocks it back. And you'll see them with spots or teardrops later on, uh, silver spots or teardrops. Well, that was just, they would change the balance for certain horses. And so the, one of the big things is stories, local stories around here, a few miles down my, the road here is where Marduena's shop was. And he would set up his bit shop along the beach. He lived a little further up the canyon. Between here and Ventura, between Santa Barbara and Ventura, when the Baqueros brought their Pacamore horses, and they would ride between the missions to go work. They would stop at the beach there. It was a place where the tide would come up and they couldn't pass until low tide. He would watch them ride the horses. They went down and worked. And when they came back, he'd have a bit built for that horse when it was ready to progress with the correct balances. That's why you'll see a lot of little variances in different spade bits. We don't have that luxury, so we try to get a bat that fits kind of like a semi-quarter tree or something. You know, it's going to fit the most horses yes. that we ride. Um, I do, on my horses, I do have specifically built because uh, you know, that's what I do. So. But I don't have a, you know, I'm not right 50 horses. I also have the variances or degrees, very fine degrees. I do ride about four or 500 horses in my workshops throughout the years. Each year, we bridle 
between 60 and 70 horses first time in spade bit. So that's the important thing for me in, in a spade bit is mostly it's that balance, where the balance point is, and that it kind of matches pretty similar to where the horse is carrying itself, not as an unbroke horse. If you watch a horse at two weeks and running around a colt, I love to see a colt at two weeks because you watch they're perfectly balanced. They can switch leads, no problem. They're always ready to do the next thing, and they kind of carry themselves to that. So I look at, you can look at that and say, okay, find out the degree of that, and, and that horse, you can build a bit for that horse right then. It's after they developed in the Hackmore, because posture changes through exercise, through development, through strength training. Horses change. Their conformation changes. Muscle you know, develops the body. And so where that horse is at the point where you feel he's ready for the bridle, that's the, the balances that you want to have built into your bit or look for in a bit that's built. So that's what I look for in a spade bit. And certain horses' weight can be an issue. You'll find that mares are a lot more, that they need a little bit lighter bit. Horses that are more finished, you can go to a lighter bit. I think it's almost like if you walk around in, in leg weights, angle weights all day, I like to start them in a little bit heavier bit because it, it's slower. The balances are slower when that bit moves because of the weight. It keeps things slowed down, but it also has more signal to the horse. And then as the horse develops, its posture changes, I'll go to a lighter bit, just like the Hackmore progression. And so a lot of times in my really finished bridle horses, they'll have a fairly light bit. You know, it's just how a horse reacts to, it takes a while for horses to learn to pack these bits, to learn to carry them, right? Yes, sir. They have a lot of surface area in the mouth, so there's a lot of metal there. But they need to learn how to hold it because it's more weight than a lot of bits. Sometimes up to two pounds, a bit weighs up to two pounds. A lot of people freak out, you know, and they're like, well, they're so good in the hackboard. Why do you put a bit on? Well, the bit just refines it. It allows us to use less to develop more, less movement, less signal. When you get with a hackamore, there's quite a bit. It's a real flexible system. Well, this is a more rigid system. It's just the horse has learned the color on the lines. We fine up the lines. And we to work in a little more detail. So that is the process of the tutoring. The horse knows how to carry itself. We still keep a hackamore or bosalita underneath. And we start putting the bridle on. A lot of people put the bridle on and hang it and do all kinds of things. I'm not a big fan of that. It's the first bit our horses have. I think that should be, you know, noted is that we haven't put other bits. It hasn't had a snaffle. It hasn't had any other bit in its mouth until it's spade. And just like a snaffle bit. When you first put it on, they're going to fidget around like you saw in one of your videos you showed. You know, that horse is going to mouth around and, and figure it out. I find that. They don't do any more like that with a spade than they did to do a snap. They fidget and fart around, you know. And so having some great care and having that horse very confident in you to where you can help settle it 
with the hackamore helps. But generally, I can work with it maybe three or four days on the ground, leading it around, whatnot, and then ride them. I do it pretty slow. I start everything, things that they know. It's almost like restart. I mean, basically, the horse knows it and is comfortable with you being on its back, but you're basically starting over. Yes, sir. It goes a lot quicker than originally. But, uh, you know, we give the horse time to learn to pack that. Because our deal is, I have this asked a lot of me in the workshops. It's like, well, when can I pick up on the rain? Well, the point is not to pick up on the rain. It's not to pull on the horse. It's to have that as a balancer. All right. It's that. It's to have a wall to push to, to push the energy from behind to a spot. And instead of having to hold that like a modern dressage rider or even a classical dressage rider, to have to hold that with a certain amount of direct contact through hands, no matter how good or light they are. Well, that doesn't work, Cowboy. You need to be able to ride them one-handed. You need to be able to rope. You need to be able to do things. So what we want to do is take that same idea of having the horse be on the bridle. Instead of being on the bridle, be with the bridle and be with the balance. So we push the horse to it. It finds the balance. It learns that that supports it. That allows it to carry itself in balance and helps the horse stay. So you can be on a loose rein and not have contact with the horse all the time in the slightest movement gives the horse signals, signals of it too. Of course, this always comes through the body, through the reins to the bit, not the other way around. So that's the idea with the two rein. Gives the horse enough time to figure out. It's gotta be in a certain posture to be able to hold that. You know, you'll see, well, those bits are too heavy and the horse slips up. Well, if the horse is lifting its neck to make movements, to make to suck back, to roll back, to span, whatever you're doing. If it's having to depart and it has to throw its neck and head up, well, that horse is not collect. That does horse doesn't know how to use its body. And so it's using its head and neck instead of engaging its hind end and driving up forward, which would just elevate and round every vertebrae in the back. It's, they're broke somewhere. We don't want to break our horses anywhere. We don't want to broke at the pole or broke at the withers. We want every vertebrae to take a slight amount. They don't bend that much anyway. Every piece to connect the horse. It's about connection, not disengagement. And so driving from behind into that support that gives a horse enough balance where it can hold it together without us actually having to physically hold it up, you know, by directly. Yes, sir. So to me, it's the ultimate self-carriage tool. Uh, that's what you're really describing it is self-carriage. And I've always found it ironic that, that the dressage is the discipline that, that touts self-carriage. <clears throat> the way they go about it, they're, they're almost anti-self-carriage in, in the practical uh, nature of the way they ride. A, ho- a horse can't carry himself if you're carrying him all the time, right? You, you have to let go of him at some point. So Yeah, he's got to learn to to not do that without you. You can help him, but you, they support him all the time. And what happens when they let go? The horses shoot forward, you know, and become totally disconnected. Yes, sir. You know, in a stock horse in a real ranching situation, we can't hold collection all the time. The horse has, it works in degrees of collection. 
when it's really working, it needs a higher degree of collection. When it's just traveling, it doesn't. Yeah. We need to stay out of their way. And so, you know, this gives us the ability to, in a moment, change the horse's balance from a loose, long horse to a gathered in this system. The first step to every maneuver is to gather. The first thing we gather is ourselves. We gather ourselves. The horse gathers with us. We do something. And then we may let them out or we may keep them in a fairly collected state because we're going to do more things. But that ability to gather the horse up, do something, and then leave it alone and allow it to do it on its own, I think is what this system is about to me. One of the things, um, you haven't really gotten to this part of that video yet, but I, I really come from more of an engineering type background. And so I'm, I break leverage down a lot. And I've, I've always felt that there is a sort of a chip on the shoulder of a lot of the, the Vaquero guys that it's a signal bit and not a leverage bit. And I certainly understand what they mean by that. But at the same time, not acknowledging the leverage aspect of the bit doesn't allow you to understand how the bit works because all of the mechanics work off of leverage. Uh, It's the reason that the signal exists. It's the single easiest way to change quickness or slowness of action in a bit. It's what the balance comes down to. All of that is dictated by the mechanics of levers. And that may be a little more of an analytical look at it than what most people want to do and that, then that's perfectly fine but like if we're building bits and we don't understand that race car mentality about what putting this rear end does then there's no way that we can fine-tune a bit or anything because we don't know what adjusting this does the science of levers goes all the way back to archimedes 400 years before christ he wrote the first mathematical textbook on it the levers were used building the pyramid so the, the math of it and the, the physics is ancient. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, not, it's not new or cutting edge by any stretch of the imagination. So to me, like... Well, and it's, it's, it's provable. It's science. It's mechanical science. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's something that's a consistent... You, you can't, you know, you can't consistently say about feel, which is what most people, you know, talk about a lot is feel. Well, yeah, feel is great, but if you don't understand the mechanics of the piece of equipment you're using, the actual mechanical facts, you know, yes, sir. These, aren't, these aren't things that have black and like they're really straight. And so understanding these things, like you say, what bit, what makes it quick? What makes a bit slow? You know, the distance between where the curb strap and the cannon bar are located is no different than you know, using a, a, a breaker bar, where, where your leverage point, where you put your log, you know, the further up that is, the slower that's going to be, the less power it will put on a point, one point of, of contact. Yes, sir. And so, you know, yeah, I get that too. You know, we try to use it. It's used that as a signal, but it has, it definitely has a, there's a leverage or a contact aspect to it which is you know even before i mean the the so i kind of broke it down in the video 
a little differently than than what I've seen it done other places. And honestly, the hackamore was a big part of why I decided to word it the way that I, I worded it. So I break it down into a signal phase and then a leverage phase. And signal is basically everything that occurs before the curb strap comes tight. But the bit is still acting as a lever in that phase. It still rotates about a fulcrum, which is the, you know, the, the cannons in the, and that is what is the major determining of how fast the signal is going to play out and, and so forth. And that is also a mirror image to the hackamore. The hackamore's fulcrum is the nose buttons that you were talking about where the hanger ties in and it's going to rotate about that point. The difference with the hackamore is once you have exhausted the free movement and you're now tight, you have no leverage. There's no mechanical advantage to that apparatus. And to me, where we get into the two-rain phase, if, if you don't have your horse finding the hole in the hackamore, the game of operation like you were talking about, then there's there's no concept for him there of understanding the balance yet. But you also could put a hackamore on that balance is contrary to the spade that you have on and your horse is getting conflicting <laughs> signals of where he's supposed to be. The, the neutral positions for the hack, the Bosalita at that point and the spade need to be similar, I think. So I, I think that's one of those areas where the Fiador can play. Like if you, you have no Fiador on typically in that, that spot. So that can change the, the neutral position of that, that Bosalita at that point. I know we're kind of splitting hairs here, but I mean, why, why talk to an expert if you're not going to split hairs? So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's, I think that's, you know, those are, those are definitely justifiable things that need to be thought about. And when you see just the, the action, people also talk about you know, most bits, people are thinking about leverage and how the leverage works, but they're not also not taking into account, you know, why, why do I like a four inch, a minimum of four inch spoon, right? So if we take our fulcrum, which is the cannon bar, right? And we have our our spoon is the length of what's below the fulcrum. That's going to change the amount of leverage in that bit, not only where the curb strap aligns, but because that has as much area above the, the engaging part where the reins connect, that's going to slow that down quite really as far as a leverage you know it's like having a bar which is in the middle like you a pry bar where your fulcrum only where you know where you only have a log in the center typically becomes one to one yes so uh, i don't i don't want to be contrary to you but um, that actually works a, a little bit differently uh, so when, when we get closer to a one-to-one -one ratio like with a taller taller spoon that actually speeds up the action of the bit and i, I would suspect there you are okay um so i would suspect like a, a santa barbara is actually a very fast action bit where a las cruces is a slower action bit um and and i tend to find that higher level riders get along with the faster action bits better because they have more feel and it's a bit that has more feel. So, so for instance, and this gets complicated, it's very different, very difficult to describe 
by word of mouth. That's why I think the video is a good tool because we, we draw the illustrations. But like if you had a, a seesaw, that's a, a first class lever. And in in the signal phase of any leverage bit, it acts as a first class lever. That actually changes when the curb chain comes tight and we end the, the signal phase. But but for for signal, this is how it works. So if you envision two kids on a seesaw and they're both you know 10 feet out from the fulcrum that's a one-to-one ratio the same weight would be lifted if if one of those kids moved in five feet and we now have a two-to-one ratio the distance that that child would be lifted would be half the distance if he's on the outside so so if we're looking at the arc of the circle and so forth and that's essentially where our signal comes from so so if you vision the, the seesaw moving up and down like this, one half is the shank of the bit, one half is the purchase or the port. If we have a one-to-one ratio, the shaded area that it would make when it moves would be equal. But if we move that kid in five feet, the shaded area on the short side would now be half as, or actually a lot less than half as, as large. So, so I, I feel like that's probably why you like a Santa Barbara because you, you can do very, very subtle hand movements and you still get a lot of shading with the seesaw in essence. So again, I'm not, I'm not trying to be contrary to you, but that's, that's, there's a a very consistent mathematical relationship there as to how the speed of action works. One of the places that gets more complicated is, is when the curb chain comes tight, the center of rotation for the lever actually changes. So it moves to the top ring of the bit the head stall and the curb chain essentially immobilize that point and rotation stops. And now the place we're putting force is on the cannons of the bit or the bars of the horse's mouth. And it actually becomes mechanically a second class lever at that stage. So there's a, there's a significant shift in the physics that occurs whenever we get into the leverage phase and one of the reasons I think that's again, we're splitting hairs. Maybe people don't practically need to know this, but mechanically speaking, that lever becomes more powerful the way you do the math. Um, so if you had a three to one, let's say a, an eight inch cheek with six inches of shank and two inches of purchase in the signal phase, that's a three to one ratio bit. But when it transitions to a second class lever, when we actually come tight, it be, actually becomes a four to one ratio bit um so if you pull 10 pounds on the reins you don't have 30 pounds in the horse's mouth you have 40 it becomes 25 percent you know a third more powerful than uh, than people realize which again is a lot easier to express in a video than it is just talking by by the mouth so like the las cruces i'm not a, a real big fan of that that cheek style either uh mainly because of the balance because it does put a horse on the vertical and as soon as you take up any slack on the reins, he's going to get behind the vertical. And there's a whole host of reasons why I'm not a fan of that. But I consider that more of a parade style bit. Uh, it's, it's pretty to look at. But for a riding in rough country and having a horse watch cattle, it's, it's not practical in any way, uh, shape or form. I want to ask one question on that. What, on, why would you think uh, Las Cruces would be uh, slower? Than a Santa Barbara, typically because it's a higher leverage bit, it generally has a longer shank. Um, if if it doesn't, 
if, if the ratios are the same, then it's not. But just typically right. what you see, it tends to be a little right. shanked bit. Yes, sir. Generally, the mouthpieces, at least on the old ones, they were built at vertical to balance point or where the horse, where it would lay without touching was vertical. And like you say, would get them behind vertical when engaged. I think one of the aspects, like you say, rotation has so much to do once we make contact. It's the rotation has that. And one of the big differences I find in California bits or at least spade bits was the braces. And that's where I think some of the brace, um, the importance of braces is, is the horse can control rotation a certain amount. And that's one of the reasons I think that it's very misunderstood about hands with the spade. If you just take a hold of the reins and pull back on a spade bit, I mean, you might as well pull on your tail. It does not have, like, if you take a half breed or you take a regular grazing bit or anything else, and you get a hold of them, you're going to have a lot more feel that horse coming, getting behind the bridle. It's very dull. They have to be, to feel for the signals. Because the horse can stop the rotation if the horse takes a hold of that bit it's supposed to be allow the horse to take control of the bit. And I think that's one of the misconceptions of a spade bit. It's not about creating more control. It's about creating the horse, allowing the horse to protect itself. And so, as you know, roping and riding, and especially this country is very steep. Coastal California is very steep and very rough country. And they went through this process. And one of the reasons I started teaching was I was like, you know, it wouldn't make much sense. You know, let's, let's do this. Let's go through this whole process. So we're going to start the horse in the hackmore so that we don't hurt its mouth. We're not going to put a bridle in its mouth until its mouth is fully set, until its teeth are fully developed, all its jaws fully developed. We're never going to put anything in its mouth. And then we're never going to lead the horse by the reins. We're not going to do all these things to protect the horse. And then we're going to put a bit in that is harsh doesn't make any sense does no so then we're going to put something in so we're going to go through this this very long slow process and then at the end we're going to put this vicious piece of metal in their mouth Mm -hmm. and so what it does though it does allow the horse to protect itself the horse can take a hold of it and it can stop the rotation and the reason that we have to have good hands is if you hang on it the horse will learn to protect itself just like the hackamore. If you hang on a hackamore, you don't have anything. The horse will just learn. It's just a piece of rawhide. I don't care how much authority you have in your hackamore. If you just hang on it, they just push, take it away and they'll hold on to it and push into it. There's not enough force. That's the downside of this style. The upside is, is that you can push the body up to it without fear is that you can drive from behind. You can drive the motion up the horse. It has enough wall to catch that motion and create that collection, but not so much that the horse gets scared to. It's pretty hard to drive a horse to something that it's scared of. You have to use a lot more force in your impulsion to drive a horse to something that it's afraid of. And so you end up having to use whips or whatever, you know, it's the, the more, 
It's yeah. being on the hot wire fence principle again. You you don't approach that fence quickly. You're always drawn yeah. back. It bit you. So the spade has so much surface area. Like you say, there, there really isn't a, a sharp bite to it. Um, and I'm sure you've had to do this too. But if, if you do get a horse that has been ridden with a lot of contact in a spade bit, there's probably nothing that can dull one like that and take all of the sensitivity out of them because that they're, they're so dull to so much signal that, you know, it, it takes a Mack truck to get something done at that point in time. Yeah, they do. They, they will lose their sensitivity from that bit. Um, you know, and then we, we come down to the thing of, then you come down to that point where you either have to develop, start over and develop that horse's sensitivity to your movement of your body, to the seat movement, the change of that. As far as I'm concerned, our seat and that bit don't work any differently. We have a neutral position. We have a position that's easy that goes with the horse. And then we, we adjust from there. To me, that's the most important. It's also the hardest thing to teach, as you know. You know, people ask, what's in front of you is easy. What's behind you and underneath you is a lot more difficult to associate into riding and especially into teaching because most people just want to deal with what's in front of them. And we get a lot of head and neck movement. I mean, you know, how many horses you've been on? You can pull that head and neck anywhere, but their feet <laughs> are not, their body is not coming through, right? Yes. To me, that, that ties in with the the bad feel we were talking about earlier, like the vertical flexion, the, the head and neck is on a hinge, but it, it it's it's loosely going in without resistance in the wrong direction. It wasn't connected to what it was supposed to be connected to. Right. Well, you talked a little bit earlier about the conformation of the horse's mouth, and I do want to get into your clinics and stuff here. So, so I take it in your clinics, you are frequently bidding horses up for the first time. Is that correct? That's correct. And so what, what things are you looking for specifically in, in a horse's conformation or what you, you know, the mouth you have to deal with that makes you choose this one versus that one or so forth. What are, what are you looking for there? Well, a lot of times with spade bits, you know, I want to watch the horse go. We watch the people ride the horse. We ride the horse ourselves. And most of the time it's a matter of that horse is not, has not created any collection and stuff. Okay. It doesn't have posture to really work well in a spade bit. And so we, we try to help people determine you know let's see have you developed any collection any of this posture to where the horse can carry something in balance right a lot of times if it's just hanging in their face that's not a bridle horse so the horse has to develop that posture once we see where that horse's posture can to be developed to we'll take a bit and if you hold it between your hands and when it starts rolling out of your hand at that angle, you know, when that bit starts leaving through gravity between your hands, that's the balance point of that bit. And so we'll look for a bit that kind of matches the balance point of how that, that horse wants to carry its head in engagement. That's one of the things I look for. I have bits that are kind of different degrees of how the how straight up they are. I ride a lot of Andalusian horses. They tend to be more straight up and down. They don't need a whole lot ahead of vertical. 
as far as because they their necks come up higher. They're naturally built in a higher. The Spanish horses tend to be that way. One of the reasons I gravitate to them is because it's not something where if you take a horse that's downhill, he at least needs to balance. He needs to change his posture at least to level, right? So he needs to be reaching up far enough with his hind feet in his movements, whether he's loose or gathered, that he's not traveling in downhill. He's done, you know, we're adjusting the the front end load from, you know, on a Spanish horse is probably 60, 40 on a lot of quarter horses, probably 70, 30, that down, downward crush, how much weight they're carrying on their front end. We need to adjust that. We need to bring them up to where their heart and girth is coming up. So working in balance, you have to have the horse to a point of elevation that it has can hang something on it that will help balance. Uh, right. It won't work if they're, and so that's the hackamore process. And so a lot of the times when the person has reached that level, then we'll talk about putting them in the bit. And a lot of times we'll do it, you know, maybe beforehand. So the person has time to prepare and, and order the right type of bit. If we can get the horse into a place and then bid it a couple of times uh, through the, the course of a workshop, then at least they'll have an idea what they're looking for when they go to buy a bit. Because they're not cheap. And <laughs> they so you don't want to buy cheap, <laughs> You don't want to buy a lot of them. So that's kind of what we're trying to develop. I think so much of people are talking about changing bits or something, but so much of it is about developing the horse to a point where you're going to be successful in that style that you're riding. You know, a lot of a lot of things we do, you know, in cutting and stuff, that wouldn't be as important. Of course, those things are important. We know as further you get, but that bid is really not influencing that horse very much in its actual job. Yes, I, I would. Yeah, like for a, a cutting horse, probably get, yeah, right. bad choice. I, right. I'm sorry, I lost you there. What was that? I said it's more likely getting in the horse's way. Yeah, a bit. Yeah, you know, yeah. I've so many cutters when they pull off the bridle, they work so much better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think cutting horses really to see cattle, they have to have their nose out significantly farther than most other uh, horses just because of the, the distance that they're viewing right there. Right. Uh, and I think that's why grazing bits have been kind of the go-to for so long because that type of bit balances in that manner where they can have their head where they can see the cattle and and not like if you had a spade bit that's asking him to come to the vertical all the time he's he's constantly in conflict of obeying the bit or doing his job and that's that's got to take something away from his performance you know even if it's two or three percent that might be the difference between a check and not a check you know so right well, that's yeah. the difference between reined you know reined horses and and you know horses that are working they're they're set up and they know their job and they're they're trained to do that but they're virtually working on their own we want to have the best of both worlds because cowboy you know so much of it is roping and stuff like that where we need we need that horse to be together and we need it to be with us yes, um pretty close connection but I think a lot of that too is is where that horse is developed to. The beauty of the spade bit is too it learns a horse can learn to hold on to it enough that he can move where he needs to, but it takes time. 
it's not something that, uh, you know, is done overnight. The reason that I, I used to do a lot of rain cow horses and stuff like that. And, uh, we train them quite a bit differently than I do now. What I like about this system is that in a spade, but they start really dull. They're really, um, it's, it's quite a quiet feel of a bit once they get over the initial, you know, fittering around, getting used to the weight and stuff. It's, it's quite dull and slow, but as time goes on, it becomes, if used fairly correctly, they just get lighter and lighter and lighter throughout their life. And that's one of the reasons that always me searching is I could get horses when they're three-year-old year and stuff. They were good. They were great. We go to snap a bit futurity or whatever, but as those horses progressed, that progression, I never, you never got the same feel. They got duller and duller and required more and more to create the same thing. Yes, and so I, I feel like for me, this is a very practical progression, but it's a progression that keeps elevating. And of course, you know, the better you get at it, the better, you know, it, it requires a lot of thought and skill as all do. Yes, know, I don't care what you, you know, it's, it's like, you can say that some things you can get to a little quicker, but Overall, people go, well, this this works faster. No, that gets to a point faster. You know, if you're developing a horse, that's a lifelong deal. It's or as long as you're riding that horse, you're either developing or tearing them down. I was having a discussion with a young lady um, at our Louisiana Equine Council meeting yesterday. That she had sent a, a horse out to be started with a, a young hotshot reining trainer around here and he had come very close to telling her that her mare was so badly off that she needed to euthanize her. And a large part of that was because he didn't, he wasn't able to get her spinning a hole in the ground in 30 days. And normally that's where he gets to. <laughs> and I was thinking, good gracious. I mean, I could, I'm sure I could do that if I wanted to, but I don't want to, you know, that that's what I learned right there is that that guy's not riding a horse for me. And he, he, you know, I don't want him working for me either. If that's even a goal that's in front of him is 30 days. They need to be spinning a hole in the ground. He, he's, well, he needs a little and more. That's it, you know, <laughs> we all get different perspectives on riding and what's important to us, I guess. And, and I think that's why there's a lot of people out there doing different things, but, uh, you know, it comes down to, I'm not going to have a bunch of people following what I do. I know that, but hopefully I'll get a few that, uh, you know, they care for their horses and their, and their concern is to become better for their horses. You know, that's, that's what it comes down to. We use this system. I use this system because I believe it, it, uh, it's very natural for horses. I don't have to, um, if I ride correctly and I use the equipment correctly, they understand it right away. It's very easy. It's more of a herding style. It's almost like, it's just like herding a cow, really. I mean, we do things, we don't get ahead of cattle and horses and pull them around just like we don't get ahead of, you know, all this people turning away and looking somewhere ahead of their horse and they don't even see their horse. And then, you know, they have one option to drag it around. I get a lot of grief for saying, no, just wait, the horse needs to go first. Well, 
this style, well, it has Spanish, you know, roots, like every horse in America's <laughs> for at one point. Okay. Let's, it has a Spanish root, but they developed something different here in California because of what they were doing. It's really based on herding. And well, that was one question that I had for you. Um, as, as the Spanish did in the long run. Yes, sir. Because what they did, if you understand, if you did this work afoot and then you got on a horse, if you moved horses afoot, you know, the first thing you would do is not get ahead of your horse and then drag it behind you. You would herd it somewhere. And so it's very well based on that. So horses understand it and they, they do it easily. There's then have to drill because it's fairly simple to once you get your enough control of your own physical self to refine your sick. One question that I had for you there, what does go back into the history and I'm most of the time when I ask a question, I have, I, I think I have a pretty good idea of the answer. This is one of those. I have, I have no idea where this may lead, but so I know from my cutting roots when I was still doing the apprenticing in the, the late nineties and early two thousands. And let me, let me pause. I have a dog problem now. Cool. <laughs> him out so he quits whining at the door, please. My, my son is sick and he's laid up in here with headphones on and, and he's oblivious to the world around him at the moment. Oh, he doesn't have COVID, does he? I, I, I think it's just a cold. I'm, I think people can still get <laughs> cold and flu. But, um, <laughs> they still exist? I think so. <laughs> okay. So, so what I was going to say, when I was in the apprenticing stages in cutting in the late 90s and the early 2000s, that was sort of a, a period when we were starting to have an influx of California trainers moving to Texas. And what I always felt like in that point was you, you would see those guys come. And most of, most of the shows in cutting, the big ones anyway, are at Will Rogers in Fort Worth. And so you're working Texas cattle. And the, the feel that I always had was that the California guys' horses were used to working softer cattle. And when they came to Texas and they had a little more Brahmin influence, a little grittier cattle that would, would challenge your horse a little bit more, their horses just weren't used to that. And they would get a little bit lost. And I think those guys started gravitating this way to sort of be in the same environment that everybody else was in. And then their horses were a little more used to the type of cattle. Now I may be wrong on that, but that's always sort of the feeling that I've had about it. So what, what would you say being more of a historical guy, what influence did the cattle have on the way going up, you know, training the horses and the equipment that was used and, and so forth? Well, I think it had a big difference. I think one of the reasons that, uh, you know, you'll see, see a lot of guys gravitate down there was the availability of cattle. And so they, I don't think your cattle are any wilder there than they are here as far as when they're fresh. But I think a lot of times guys from California, when they, you know, they have to keep their cattle longer okay. and the availability. They don't have the, the, you know, that's one of the beauties of down there is that you have a lot, you, you have the ability to get on fresh cattle a lot more. Here, I think it had a huge difference, you know. I mean, this started with the hide and tallow trade. And so these were pretty wild 
cattle. And the fact that they would harvest the hide as a three-year-old. And so they may mark and brand them, but they're three years old and wild as deer. And so the the effect was a lot different. And and a lot of things, uh, uh, one of my mentors, Ray Ordaway, they had a different style of cutting, right? It wasn't a head-to-head cutting. And Mm -hmm. so historically, they would work side to side to to head, right? And outside, you'll end up doing that a lot more. There's not the ability of fences, you know. So it's it's ride to the stirrup in a straight line, create a partition between the cow and the herd when you're sorting something out. And so it's a lot more ride ride the cow, your stirrup to their head type of riding, a lot straighter than head to head. You know, which is more of a sandbox. You have a bigger area to cut things, so you've got to stay in more straight lines. Plus, you're outside and you don't have good ground, right? So it tended to be a lot more about the horse going someplace straight, stopping hard, and rolling back over its hocks instead of down, getting down low and pushing off its front end. And so your hind end—that's that's what developed a lot more, I think, in California and was less specialized, you know. A cutting horse on slick, grassy ground doesn't do very well. You know, if you're outside and you're on, and here the grass is slick when it's wet, but it's really slick when it's dry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's not something I would have expected, yes. Yeah, it's super, you know, on hillsides and stuff when you're down here. You slide down these hills. I mean, it's it's uh, it's very um, kind of slick area. So a lot of that front end push off was not. It, they need to rock back on their hocks and roll their front end around. And so it's a different style of riding. And I don't know if that had an influence. I think cutters, you know, they're probably following the people that are winning at cutting. And yeah, most of those were in Texas. And so th- there's no doubt that that. Well, I don't think cutting is as fad driven as some of the other disciplines like reining, for instance. Uh, there's there's no doubt that what it has evolved into is is less than practical in all uh, aspects. I am fortunate. <clears throat> all of the trainers that I worked for were kind of cowboys first. And so like we were using the two year olds to doctor cattle. And I mean, they, they would open gates. I mean, they were they were kind of ranch horses first and then show horses as they developed. I know there are some other trainers out there where their horses never leave the arena. Um, I actually had a customer that brought one for me to tune and he got there a little bit early and I didn't have the cattle up yet. So I said, well, you know, just hop on your horse and come out with me and we'll, we'll gather the cattle. His horse had a complete and total nervous breakdown out there in the past. He had to get off of him and lead him back to the barn after I had pinned the cattle. And, and the thought to me, this horse had won about 10,000 bucks. Um, yeah. You could train a cutting horse, show horse that couldn't walk into a 20-acre pasture and pin a few heifers just blows my mind. But apparently someone managed to do it. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, I think the ability, I think sometimes uh, show horses uh, often lose the, you know, the ability to do real jobs. That's one of the things that's always been important to me. I come, I was cowboy. I was that for a long, long time. And so 
you know, once the, a job loses its effectiveness, like I'm big on collection. I'm huge on on developing classical lateral movements and, and using lateral movements to develop because I think it's the only way you can develop a truly one-handed horse, you know, because you have to shape them and you can't pull their heads around. So you need to learn to shape the body and set the horse up physically through its body. But, you know, a lot of that things, collection can be a two-edged sword too. I mean, that's, uh, you can over collect and that horse loses function. Yes, the sir. ability, you know, it becomes to where it's just too spring loaded, if you will, you know, airs above the ground are great unless you need to do something and then <laughs> airs above the ground are very efficient. <laughs> so yes, the ability for the horse to be able to do that is great, but you know, you have to keep it in a practical sense. That's the one thing I've always tried to do is you got to keep it real. And to me, always it's about the practicality. I'll try to protect my horse and bring them along as good as I can, but when stuff needs to be done, it needs to be done. And so that horse has got to be, you know, it's got to learn to take a joke and be a little forgiving because stuff happens in real life. And, uh, you know, we can talk all this fantasy, what we want, but as we all know, we're going to pull on horses. Yeah, (laughs) we are. (laughs) The ideal world. And then there's the real world. Yes, sir. And and people get a lot of that. That's what you hear, especially in the California style. Everybody's looking for this mystical. I mean, it's not a Walt Disney movie. Horses are horses. They do funny things, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, in real life, things will happen. It's just try to minimize those as much as you can. I mean, that's that's my philosophy on it. And uh, we're all in a, a learning progression, or we should be, hopefully. Because if you didn't, why would you do this so long? Yeah. No, I've been doing this time and it's like if you're not in a learning progression you might as well do something else something that makes money because <laughs> as you know you can be really successful in the horse business and not make any because <laughs> yes, you're usually working pretty hard to break even most years and COVID yeah. definitely didn't the overhead is <laughs> <laughs> so, there, back to what you said a second ago um, i'm not going to name him on here but one of your counterparts I like to make a little bit of fun of to me, he gets pretty big into the welfare of the horse side of things. And and I'm kind of thinking the whole time. And yet in your living room, you've got a huge painting of a horse roping a bear. And that was not, you know, where was welfare of the horse at that moment? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there are certain things, you know, it's like, if you're really that into it, are you going to rope a cow? Mm-hmm. And it comes down to it, you know, I mean, it's a job. It's about keeping things alive. Our whole deal is stockmanship can be done, but it's for the benefit of it. And we have events, but they're to develop skills to where you can be better at it. And maybe, um, you know, everything comes out a little less gay. And so yeah. keeping the stress down is very important but you know what life has stress it has tension it has things involved in it that eventually we're gonna they're gonna have to learn to cope with at least on certain levels and I mean, so yeah that's the the defining characteristic between one that's green and one that's broke the one that's broke can can handle the rough spots too you know the one that's green yeah. you're, you're not quite sure what might happen here in the next minute so <laughs> um, 
Well, I just have two more questions. I know we've been talking a long time. When we had done the, the pre-phone call about this, uh, we talked a little bit about some of the physical differences in the horses then versus now and the bits that you would find and mouth width and so forth. So would you talk a little bit about that? I, I kind of call BS sometimes when I hear these guys that are that say they're riding a 150-year-old bit. I'm kind of wondering how the hell they put that on a quarter horse because it's probably an inch too narrow. <laughs> you know. So what are your thoughts? Well, there is quite a bit of difference in the bit sizes. Um, I actually have a bit from the 1890s that I ride quite a bit, but it was a wide one. I don't know what it was built for, but it's 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 a wider mouth. It's got about a, a five and an eighth inch mouth on it, and I ride it in a an Azteca horse who has a fairly narrow mm-hmm. narrow mouth, really. But what's strange is the bits were had the width of, you know, a lot of the old bits were four and a four and a half wide. They looked like they were on ponies or something, mm-hmm. but they weren't. They were horse bits. And generally, a cheek was not over seven inches. So they, were, they weren't quite as long. A lot of times on a seven-inch cheek, you'll have a hard time not having their chains in your mouth now. Nowadays, horses just have longer mouths. But what's amazing to me in studying a lot of them is that where the braces connect to the to the spoon was sometimes two two and an eighth inch wide there. Well, most horses now, if you measure in there where that mouthpiece could fit comfortably inside of the premolars, because that's where the most of these bits only reach to the premolars, it's not going to work. That horse is going to have that bit in its teeth all the time. And definitely some changes in, in the physicality. Much bigger horses with different mouths and palates. And I, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with different feet. If you look at California saddles here, we have some great museums in Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. And the Santa Barbara Carriage Museum, you go look at the saddles. I mean, they're so narrow. They wouldn't fit anything we ride. Yes. Unless it was a bed off the track, maybe. <laughs> as far as width. <laughs> but they didn't feed any hay. So during the big drought times here in the 1870s, they lost thousands of horses. They were running herds of horses off the cliffs into the ocean to save grass for the cows. Yes, sir. <laughs> Different times. Yes, sir. You got to do what you got to do sometimes. Hard choices and hard men. Um, yeah. Well, I guess that tips another. A lot of people tend to think of the wade saddle, and I believe you do ride a, a bunch of wades as a traditional type of a saddle, but I think it was actually invented in the 1930s or 40s. Yeah. It's really, it's not as conventional. So what are your thoughts on that? Do, do you tend to ride wades more or do you have some different styles? Or? I do. I ride uh, a wades and, and they're based on an old saddle. They're based on a Visalia style saddle. Basically, the only real similarity is that they're A-forks. Yes, sir. And so what they have is a little more bar coverage, so it dissipates weight in a larger area. And the center of gravity from your horn is lower than, say, an old A-fork. You know, they would be pretty tall. No, those guys are using fairly skinny horns and rawhide ropes. So you're not dallying off on... You would say a lot of people using rubber or cotton or something like that. These these ropes, you have to 
almost continuously dally to keep something stopped. If you watch the guys in Sonora, even to this day, they dally on brass with riatas and they're, <laughs> you know, it's continuously keeping wrapping. Things are going places. And we still use that. We still run rope, but uh, the bigger horn base gives you a little more control, a little more ability to slow stop things. But that tradition is still basically the same. And so for those aspects, it's why I choose it. It also, the seat can be built. I want my the center of my body, the center of my seat, maybe the seam of my jeans to be my balance point. And so I want a saddle that's built with that pocket in mind. The center of the saddle is the lowest point. That just depends on, you can build any saddle like that, but uh, the way seems to work it's a little narrower if you're riding all day it doesn't quite split you as much as like an association or something like that so it allows you to be a little more comfortable in my opinion you know that's the reason i choose them i don't think you know if you're going to be by say you'd be more of a 3b traditional saddle and a 5 8 you know those guys uh they rode a 5 8 or a center fire rigging too so that doesn't fit on modern horses either, you know. When you put hay in their bellies, then yeah. <laughs> then your where your girth groove is quite a bit more forward. So I ride a three quarter. Things things change and adapt to the animals we ride. So when we say about tradition, I'm looking at the principles of the the science of the riding. That's the that's the tradition that I follow, or what makes sense for the gear. It's not really written down, you know. If I want to study classical dressage, I've got a thousand years of, of literature I can go through. Yes, yeah, great, different writers and stuff. But if you want to do this, there's nothing written, written by the actual people. Yes. Well, like you said, a lot of them Or Mexican California vaqueros, right? California has three phases, Spanish California, Mexican California, and Anglo-California. Well, there's not much written from the guys that actually developed the tools, but you can see how the tools work. And then what I did to learn to, to change from what I did from, say, Rain Cow Horse is I just reverse engineered all the equipment and how the equipment worked with a steady balance point and signal. Then I tried to develop that in my seat and my body. And when I did that, things started working the way that I'd always imagined they could. Yes, sir. And I guess that would be the last question we had alluded to earlier about sort of the fork in the road of, of dressage and, and the Vaquero file. And to me, that's kind of the Doma Classico versus Doma, Doma Vaquero. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm having a senior moment there. And to me also, there is... And, and again, this, this is something I don't know the answer to, but there was a period and there still is a period of having the Garoka pole and more fighting type of cattle. And it's my understanding that somewhat during the tallow trade days that that was still used. It wasn't necessary, necessarily a Riata time, uh, but I may well be wrong about that. So I guess that that's another aspect of where, the like like with the Garoka pole and a lariat rope, both you have to have one hand on the reins and you have to have one hand to do what you're you're doing. In dressage, even in the classical dressage, there there are loads of videos on YouTube of Nuno Oliveira 
doing Piaf with one hand on the reins and he may have a cigar or something in the other. And he just looks like he's just chilling out on a Tuesday afternoon, riding a horse, you know, it's not nearly as uptight as some of what we, we see uh, these days. So, so do you have an answer for me there of, of specifically when that fork, and I know it's probably not like uh, Tuesday, the 7th of February 19 or what, you know, but what are your thoughts on that? And am I wrong about the Garoka and, and the tallow trade and it stayed across the pond or, or what? Well, the Garocha was, um, you know, primarily used when they, when Spain came to New Spain and conquered, conquered Mexico, New Spain, which was, is Mexico now, a few things happened. What happened was at one point, all cattle were owned by the church, okay? During the mission period, all cattle were owned by the church, one brand. As more people came to New Spain, it became, they started giving grants, and grants were to individuals. And so there was open range, and what was happened was they used the garrocha with a hockey knife. And, but with all these brands, there was a big deal on how do we separate? You know, how do we keep things separate? Because basically, once you hawk one, it's done. The deal is done. <laughs> and so, you know, as they developed these herds and it became, they ran in common and branding became a thing, roping was developed. So, the um, development of that came from that, okay? So there was no roping before late 1500s in New Spain was developed. So horns developed on saddles, and then we became, you know, a roping society. That's where it all started. As it moved up into California, the garrocha is pretty much gone, they didn't have maguey. So if you look at Mexico, right, the primary ropes used in Mexico then and today were maguey. Well, maguey doesn't grow up here. Which, so which is, uh, it's a grass fiber that they were making the ropes out of. So it, it's a right. plant. It's was, grass. It's, yeah, it's the same plant they make tequila out of. It's agave, <laughs> a type of agave. So the maguey plant, that's what they would build ropes out of. Twisted out of there or horsehair. Horse hair was used often for roping back then as well. So once that developed, first they were tied off. Then they developed horns on their saddles. If you look at every different Spanish colony, it's a little bit different. In Argentina, they never change. In Chile, they never developed past that being tied off. They still rope, but now they're still tied to the tail or a century. As it came into New Spain, they developed horns on saddle. That became a very much more efficient way to handle cattle in bigger country. That's the other thing you got to realize is the size change. Up in California, because they didn't have the maguey, they switched to rawhide. So braided rawhide ropes, riatas, that's what we use, la riata, where la riat comes from, la riata. <laughs> right? Yes, sir. So, <laughs> and, and with a with a riata rawhide, there's no way you can be tied on. That has to be because uh, it'll break, right? So, so the dallying and all. Well, you, yeah, you have to be pretty careful. A lot of people, you know, they used to even tie on with rawhide ropes. You know, they run them through the fork. Even in early rodeos in Salinas, you'd see 
vaqueros would go there and do steer tripping with uh Riatas. yeah a, a riata can take a lot of pull it just can't take much of a jerk yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay so so that's hence the running of the rope you can't just throw your slack in the air and pop something over so that became kind of the thing and here you know they didn't have a lot of metal for a long time it was quite a trip to come into alta california so there wasn't a lot of metal so when they eventually brought the indigenous people into working it was against the law for one thing to put them on horseback so they were breaking spanish law when they put indigenous people on horseback because you got to remember the the native people they came up through were the comanche <laughs> you know, those are the people through, as they moved north, pretty warlike tribes. And California had a whole different vibe here, you know. There's that laid-back California thing, that started long before we got here. <laughs> they were way more relaxed because there was plenty of food, right? It all comes down to how much food you can produce. So if you have a mild climate where you're not having to fight for everything, you know, things grow, things thrive. And so that developed through there. And that's where it became more the garrocha was dispensed with. Roping became a big deal. And uh, the riata was a very integral part in development of the system, too. This system is designed to rope. So it became from, you know, hawking cattle and crippling them to catching them stretching them out, slitting their throat and taking their hides off, collecting the tallow. And then the ships would come around and that became, you know, the whole basis for the California economy was hide and tallow trade. And so that lasted for a long time. And most of the missions during the mission period ran, you know, between 18,000 and 25,000 head. There was 25, 21 missions. And so hundreds and hundreds of thousands of head of cattle. And so it was kind of the perfect storm for creating stock horses. Yes, sir. And, uh, but everything developed from the hackamore to the bit. And that's important because I think the bits were developed from the way the hackamore worked, not vice versa. Well, I, I definitely, you know, every, everyone appreciates the spade, but the hackamore is, is a, it, it's a part that should be more visited, I think. Anyway. That could be a whole other episode. We could just talk about the hackmore, I think. <laughs> anyway, I don't, we may be the only two that find it interesting. So. <laughs> the um, hackmore process really is amazing. And, and how my goal has always been, if I could get a horse as light in the bridle as I do in the hackmore, because it's amazing how, how intuitive and light that horse gets to you in the hackmore. And the process of bridling, sometimes it's it's like, you know, we talked about cutting horses earlier. It's until you stay with it long enough. And most people don't have the patience to stay with a bit long enough until it really develops and does what it's supposed to do. It's frustrating because you had something better and then you kind of take yourself backwards a ways. But once you hang in there, you actually get to another level, a higher level than you ever were in the hackmore and it's more sustainable yes sir i think i've probably taken up enough of your time on this sunday uh, i certainly appreciate it uh is there anything we didn't touch on that you'd like to to get to or you feel like we just knocked it out of the park here or what well 
I think we uh, we did. Uh, you know, we got a pretty good uh, gist on everything, I guess. Okay. And so, it's one of those subjects. You know, it's like any horsemanship; you can go on and on till you're picking the pepper out of crap, and then. <laughs> I think sometimes we get lost in the dissection. <laughs> well, well, let me ask you this. This is this is just one of those questions I have that I don't I don't mean to offend you, but let's say that that you you brought a horse into a spade bit, but didn't you weren't traditional. Like like let's say you threw a, a snaffle in there at some point, or you did uh, maybe start with a half breed and work your way up or something. Can you still call that a bridle horse in your mind? Does that change things or? No, it doesn't. I think technique is something that's developed by individuals. I think um, it's more about, you know, how that horse looks and how it works, how it works with itself. Mm -hmm. That horse is working like a bridle horse and, and I can see that it's, it's doing its job and, the, and they're getting along well. You know, when it comes down to it, that's the bottom line, most important thing. And so some people, I don't think through history, like I say, Ray Ordway, who talked to me, said, you know, some guys were just amazing in the hackamore. Some guys were really great in the T-ring. And sometimes they were only good in the bridle. And so a person finds that degree where they can communicate the best with their horse, that's I don't have any problem with that. The only time I have a problem with it is when they're, you know, abusing the horse to get there. Yes. I think, hey, I don't care what you use, you know, you can use a piece of baling twine as far as I'm concerned. If you're getting done what you want to be done, you know, we all have our, I teach a lot of people that you want to achieve a certain thing, a certain level in a certain way. And I think to really, to go for that, you have to commit yourself to doing it that way to enough for a long enough period of time to become good at, it. you know, when I get to that level, either I'll be dead or maybe I'll look for something else. I don't know. Right. Yes, but sir. until I get there, I'm going to continue doing what I do because I, I've never found anything personally. And I've done things a lot of different ways for many, many years mm -hmm. that, I can feel it in the horses as much as this. I think there's something, and that's why, you know, we go to this effort to try to not let it die. I think if it may never be mainstream, but I think at least people need to see that this is a, it's a good way to work with horses and keep it alive enough that I think there'd be some few people practicing. It's like everything else comes and goes in, in popularity. Yes, sir. You know, in fashion, things come back into fashion. It was gone for a long time. And especially, I think this balance aspect of it, there's a lot of people using the equipment, but doing it like you would use something else. Mm -hmm. It's they're not using the equipment as it was designed to work. I suddenly just thought of another question that I wanted to ask you. This may offend you and I'll just, and I'll, I say it in the video too, but there are lots of things that I love about the spade bit, the idea, the balance, the amount of signal that it has. The one thing that I am torn on is the cricket. And, and the biggest part of that is because some of them are so dang loud, it just irritates me. No, not <laughs> all of them are. But I, I remember vividly the first time I was ever physically around a spade bit. I was probably in my early 20s. 
and there was a guy that had just gotten one and we were, we were gathering that morning and he was 500 feet off to my right. And I heard that damn cricket all morning long, even though he was that far away. <laughs> and I was just like, Oh man, if I were on that horse, I'd, I'd want to go cut that thing out of there. And I've been around some other ones that were older and kind of broke in and, you know, they weren't nearly as loud, but this thing was loud. So what, what are your <laughs> thoughts on the necessity of a cricket? And do you ever get annoyed by a brand new one too? Or, or uh, are there things they can do to tweak it where it's not hearable from half a mile away or, or what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, well, there's definitely for us in this, this system, we kind of enjoy the sound of the cricket, but it just depends, you know, um, I don't like them. It depends on how the horse is rolling, I guess, you know, when they're frantic, yeah, I think a lot of times I think it, it was not a, a pleasant. Yeah. <laughs> now, when they do that rapid thing, it's it, it's irritating. And sometimes it's really it is noisy. You'll sit there, especially if you've got 15 or 20 people around in bridles. <laughs> I mean, it's it's kind of a roar at times. Um, the way I look at that, I want that horse's jaw to stay relaxed and soft. So if they move that thing. I find that when my horses work, they're not usually doing it. It's something to do when they're not moving their feet. Yes. And so I think if I, if it, if they'll do that and I don't have to keep holding them or telling them not to move, uh, you know, it's one of those things. It's, it's, I think a lot of times it's just like us, you know, whether we smoke or chew or two, two piece of chew gum or something, they just need something to, to kind of pacify themselves a little bit, yes. but most importantly, it's about keeping that jaw from being just rigid and tight. And I want, I want a horse to just, if it'll stay relaxed in its jaw, then it's, it's pull and its neck will stay a lot looser. And, uh, and we're always working on, it's always a balance for me. I think it's just an important aspect of it. You can always stick a match stick in there and <laughs> lock it down. I never thought about that. <laughs> you know, you take a piece of toothpick and jam it in there. I've done that when I'm hunting sometimes. Because, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like jingle bobs. If you're out hunting deer or hunting elk or something, and you go out there and somebody's wearing a love pair of jingle bobs, that's not very handy. Yeah, it, they can be, but mostly it's about them staying it's always that contradictory thing, that balance, right, of, of the horse staying supple yet engaged. And yeah. so anything that will help them stay supple as I create engagement, which is power, which is, which is tension, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. you, can't be, you can't flex a muscle without tensing it. And so if I, you know, that goes that the way. Point, Yeah. I yeah. do like it from the aspect of, of training the rider because I, I do think there are 99% of people are totally unaware whether their horse has swallowed or moved his tongue or any, I mean, he could have been completely lockjawed for the last 30 minutes and, and they have no idea. So if you have a cricket in there, you, you have an auditory signal that, you know, he just did this. So I like that aspect of it, but I don't maybe, And that can be a good indicator of irritation. When the horse is pressured or when it's it's feeling like it's got a lot of pressure, you know, they'll mm -hmm. usually run it a lot more. And so, you know, it's an it's it's kind of like a little warning and you go, okay, 
I got to figure out a way to relax this horse before he goes to that next step. Mm -hmm. Right. Before this escalates. So can I take some of this tension away in myself for what we're doing or whatever? It has its uses, but it can be annoying. <laughs> well, I don't like, like once a, a bit's been ridden five years or something, I guess the, you know, the copper edges wear off to me. They're not as, as bad, but a brand new one. I almost want to go buy a spade bit and then, then hand it to a friend and say, here, bring this back to me in five years and then I'll ride it. <laughs> so anyway. All right. Well, Mr. Sandifer, it has been a pleasure talking to you. It really has. I don't know if anybody's going to find this interesting, but you and I, but hopefully a bunch of people will listen to it and have a little, a little better uh, view into the world of the Vaquero. I personally really appreciate that you're not as rigid about it as some are. Um, I have found some people a little difficult to discuss because I mean, they're, you know, if it ain't the way grandpa did it, it's wrong. And, and I don't think that that leads to good things. I think you have to be a little, a little thoughtful and, and flexible here and there and, and so forth. And I really do appreciate that about you. I know I've been, I'm a big experimenter. If somebody could give me just about any kind of bit in the world and I'm going to go throw it on 15 horses and see what in the hell it does. And uh, I don't think if, if, if you're not willing to do that kind of stuff, you're going to be very limited in your, what, what you're going to wind up with in the end of this. So yeah. I, I really appreciate that about you. So it's well, pleasure. good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. Take care. We'll see you next week for another episode of adult onset horsemanship. I've been your host, Daniel Dolphin.